countdown for blastoff. X minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, X minus one, fire! Hello. Hi, Richard. Thank you very much for your time today. Thank you. Captain Canuck, I've known Captain Canuck since, actually since, I think it was July 1975. My father got all the issues, so they were sitting around the house, and that's one of the first comics that I uh, was aware of. So I was seven years old at that time. Wow. For people in my generation, actually, and, and younger people I talk to now, they totally know Captain Canuck. And if they see anyone else who's dressed as another character you know, maybe Vindicator or somebody else, they say, hey, look, Captain Canuck, because that is, it's in my consciousness first and foremost. Well, let me just mention something about that Marvel character, Vindicator. Yeah. Uh, and I have said this before, that uh, the mistake I made when Alpha Flight first came out was that I did not uh, go to the trouble of writing a letter, maybe even getting a lawyer to write a letter, and asking Marvel, insisting that Marvel you know, make the character a little more distinctive. It was way too close to Captain Canuck. And, um, you know, and that's caused a lot of confusion over the years. A lot of people, I've had people come up to me at comic conventions and say um, things like, oh, you know, when did you let uh, Marvel use Captain Canuck? You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And I I have to explain to them that, no, that's their character. I know it's had a couple of different names, but... It's a costume that was way too close. I mean, it's, yes. you know, a, a rendition of the flag. Uh, it's not exactly like Captain Canuck, but because it's all red and white, they just assume right away, you know what I mean? Sure. It is. Well, so, today uh, I, I want to talk about Captain Canuck and, <laughs> and no one else. You know, although, we can talk about Star Rider, we can talk about John Edwards and and all of the characters that you've been involved with. Uh, but when it comes to that comparison, for me, Captain Canuck comes out on top, and for everybody I know. Yep. So at least you've got the mind share, because if there's a new issue on the stands today, I'd be buying the Captain Canuck one. Well, the uh, you know in the first issue of Alpha Flight, uh, um, John Byrne admits to the fact that you know he Captain Canuck was his. I don't remember how it's worded. You have to look at it. Uh, but he does mention Captain Canuck and the fact that, you know, that that was a kind of the springboard for the idea kind of thing. And But my complaint is why couldn't they have, you know, put a little more thought into it and, and distinguish their character a lot more from the Canuck? That, that's my complaint about the whole thing. No, that that's understandable, too. I think that's a valid point. To start off with you, Captain Canuck, I understand that you and Ron Leishman conceived, Ron Leishman conceived the costume and, and the concept of a Canadian character back in 1971, and then you met each other, and I was reading number three, that's the issue of Captain Canuck where Ron Leishman has that two-page letter from Belgium, and he yep. concedes that he came up with the costume idea, and essentially you did everything else. You know, editor, writer, colorist, plot, and story. Yeah. Um, so with that yeah. in mind, I'd like to go right back to the beginning and start right there. Bushman's a good friend. I think he has been from the day I met him. Yeah. I met him at church. 
uh, and I, yeah, we 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 don't we can't remember exactly when, but I think it would have been in, and actually in 1972 that mm-hmm. we think you know when we talk about it that we got together for the first time and we would, uh, you know, we were both artists, we both uh, like cartooning uh, and illustrating, and uh, he, so we would get together. And yes, he he was. Uh, if it wouldn't have been for Ron, we would have done Captain Canuck. He said, you know, there should be a Canadian comic book series mm-hmm. starring a Canadian, our own superhero. I agree. And um, so, and he, he had a, I mean, I don't, he didn't say it in those exact words, but that's what he was indicating to me, that what what we should have. The He did a sketch, and I actually redid his drawing. Ron's style is very much in the line of um, gay cartoon. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, I found his superhero just a little too uh, Bigfoot, uh, you know, and, and I wanted it to be a little and, more. And maybe stereotype yeah. features. Yeah, and yeah. I, I wanted it to be a little more like the typical superhero characters, you know, that we... So I adapted his sketch a little bit. But Ron was very busy. I mean, he and I would get together and we would talk, but he was either working out in Alberta or working up north to raise enough money to serve a mission. Mm-hmm. We're both Latter-day Saints. Yeah. Mormons is a nickname. Yeah. Support himself while he was gone. Yeah. <laughs> so, so he went to Belgium for two years on missionary work, I believe. Is that right? That's right. He went to uh, France. Uh, I think he was in Belgium too, but uh, it was, that was part of the mission. I'm not sure if he he was actually in Belgium, but uh, so and then. But it was around '73 that I started to seriously look into the publishing, the distribution, all the rest of it. And I was very new to comic books, and I I had to start seriously looking at comic books, how they were put together, how you know, the, the storytelling worked, and and uh, so that's what I started to do sometime around 73, 74, and then I got really serious about it, uh, and I don't know exactly when in 74, I think it was about the summer of 74, and I started doing some work on it, and I borrowed some money, uh, and I got a printer to give me credit, and then so late in 74, I feverishly started working on the first issue. And, it, you know, I was reinventing the wheel as far as I had no, um, no one to sort of give me any guidance on how I should proceed with the whole thing. I, I spent way too much time trying to sell ad space. Wait, there are so um, many ads in it, too. And that's actually kind of impressive when I look at it. You know, comics, DC and Marvel, they they have a specific uh, look and feel and composition. And for a first time out, um, you you nailed it. I mean, there's a full page inside ad for new hot stamp T-shirt designs. You've got, you know, the drawing tips and tricks. You've got a bullpen, essentially. Um, you sold so much advertising in that. You've got the, I'm looking at it now, Muscle Fighter 4, get the free book when you... When you, you basically you want to go from skinny to, to huge, you've got the ads. I mean, yeah. you've got everything in that book, and it's well, amazing. Well, a lot to of me. those ads, yeah. Well, I knew that we needed we needed revenue sources to make this work. You're a smart and kid. a lot of those ads were um, paper response kind of ads. 
Yeah. They wouldn't give me the money up front. I had to run the ad, and then some of those ads did not work out very well. And 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 I needed content too, because I I you know I'm, anyways. It was it was a bit of a learning experience. I uh, every aspect of it was um, I, you know, I wanted to do I wanted it to look different too though, and for example, the coloring uh, when I. I got a hold, I spoke to the people who did all the coloring for all the American comic books, and when I learned how their, what their process was and the fact that it was such a limited palette of colors, yeah. I could see that anyways. Uh, I was fortunate enough to find somebody who could help me come up with a better coloring system where we would have almost unlimited range of, of color, of tone. And uh, So that so, was intentional then? Yeah, I mean, the... The method of coloring um, was, you know, the, the way they were doing it was they were they're basically making simple um, photo masks. Yeah. What we did instead was put a sheet of acetate over the line art, and uh, and then added put the color on that acetate, and then did a three color separation of the overlay. And then just a, a line shot of the black and white art. You got to remember, this is long for scanners, and yeah. use big stack cameras with little, you know, filters to do the color separations. The um, the other things that we did it, it, with that, those early issues, I used photographs in in some of the the panels. Um, again, just you know, you know, sort of reinventing the wheel almost. Um, and what, what caused you to make that choice? Because I that is stands out too. You know, looking at the uh, looking at at the the landscape on page two of your first issue, when you're in the north at the CISO headquarters. Yeah, that's clearly a photo. It actually looks like Mars. Um, yeah. What led to that uh, that artistic choice to use photos and line drawing? To be honest with you, I don't remember the the moment kind of thing exactly, but. I think all I was trying to do was just um, make the panels look as good as possible, and mm -hmm. I was willing to try anything. You know what I mean? Uh, I wasn't I, I, because I was so new to it. I wasn't, um, I, I guess, hands hands strong. What's the term I'm, I'm looking for? I wasn't bound by a, a, a standard approach that all the other publishers were using. Yes. And so, and, and I had no editor saying, oh, you can't do that, you know what I mean, kind of thing. So uh, it was just me. I was, I was it. You're the editor. Uh, yeah, well, I did everything, yeah. And the paper quality, I mean, it's, it was much higher paper quality. Um, the cover and, and inside pulp paper was much higher uh, grade stock than the other comic books from that time. Right? Yeah. Three-color separation you did as well. Boy, I mean, it's really a beautiful-looking book. And, and how old were you at that time? When you when number uh, one came out, I was twenty four. Uh, I'm born nineteen October of nineteen fifty. So uh, yeah, I would have still been twenty four when that first issue came out. But and I would have been like, you know, twenty two when I seriously started. So I I did illustration. I did fashion design. Um, I did the odd sign. I, you know, I did whatever, you know, whatever work I could find. 
So, you know, I, I think I was used to um, trying to come up with solutions that were, you know, kind of out of the box kind of thing. What other kinds of work did you do? Well, I, I started when I was in high school. Um, actually, when I was about 12 years old, my parents bought me a, a proper professional lettering brush. What's a very unique present for a 12-year-old? Tell me what your interests were at that time that, that inspired them to give you that. Well, they knew that I liked to draw. Uh -huh. Whoops. They knew that I, I was um, uh, drawing and, and constantly drawing and, and uh, that I that was my main passion and yeah. I and I think I I think I asked for it to quite honestly I saw it as a practical way to make some income and uh, and in my one of my first jobs out of high school was as a crest designer I uh, in, in those days each crest design had to be drawn by hand and then that from that drawing they made a pattern and uh, and and, uh, and that's how crests were made so yeah. I did that for a few years. I did fashion design. Uh, that led to embroidery design and then to do some design for women's outerwear and, you know, the, the kind of hippie style clothing, uh, bell-bottom jeans, vests, uh, that kind of stuff. Did um, you go through that phase at all? Were you, oh, what kind of kid were you? Did you go through the hippie phase um, and, and the, the normal uh, journey a that a kid bit. did in that time? Yeah, yeah, I, I think... Um, you know, yeah, I think I, I, I don't remember specifically. I, I, I did wear, uh, bell bottoms. I, I, one of the, I designed a pair of bell bottoms that, uh, was, that were a number uh, that I made for myself. And then, um, there was a, a batch where, uh, you know, one of the manufacturers bought the design and, and, uh, and made them. And it was a two-tone, it was a, um, a bell bottoms where uh, just below the knee it changed color. You know what I mean? Well, that's so great. It would, yeah. And 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 an embroidery going up the outside that was another one of the designs that I I came up with for the comp one of the companies that I did work for. And which company was that? Do you remember the name? Uh, I did. Um, I think you could still that sell those. Probably been Probably Westcott. Uh -huh. uh, I'm pretty sure Westcott did the the jeans. That's wild. And Westcott was based out of Winnipeg. They were a big company back then. Uh, I don't know. I, I don't think they exist anymore. Um, there was a, Winnipeg was a, a pretty big garment industry town, and so I did designs for about four different companies. You know, basically whatever I could get. A lot of times I'd get fifty bucks for a design. Well, that's pretty good money for a, a kid lot of back in the seventies. Yeah, well, you know, I was more than a kid back then. I was uh, that, in nineteen seventy. I turned twenty, oh, okay. so I, um, you know, I, I needed to make a living. I was on my own, and I def definitely needed to make a living. Oh, what did your folks do for a living? My uh, parents, uh, when we immigrated to Canada, they wanted to own their own farm, and they we did eventually. When I was six years old. They bought their first farm, small 40-acre farm, but they they both worked. My dad worked as a mechanic. My mother worked as a she did she she had a few different uh, jobs. Uh, she worked as an occupational therapist for a while. She taught ballet and tap dancing in our home. She'd been a ballet dancer in England before 
coming to Canada. Uh, my mother was a, a writer. She she sold quite a bit of stuff, um, romance stories to British uh, mag and Australian magazines. Um, she wrote and sold three books. That, uh, the first one did very well, called Going West with Annabelle. Um, and she was quite versatile. She could play musical instruments quite well. She. Well, so it doesn't sound like you wanted to be a farmer then, as a young man. No, no, I, I um, no, I, I don't think uh, we had a very small farm operation. I, I enjoyed a lot of uh, aspects of of growing up on a small farm. I, I, I think I had very good parents. Um, I, I was the oldest of six children. Uh, you know, I don't think I have anything to complain about uh, as far as, as as my childhood goes. Uh, and um, no, I, I don't think my parents ever drew, even thought of me doing anything like that. You were born in England. Uh, I was born. In, I was born in 1950, and we came over in '53, so I was just a toddler. Um, I my first memory is our leaving Ontario uh, for the West, uh -huh. <clears throat> and um, my my parents, like other Brits who were deciding to come to Canada, went to Canada House, and uh, my mother told me that the fellow at Canada House said to them, "Well, if you're going to go to to Canada, go to British Columbia because it's the nicest area." And uh, but they got off the boat in Halifax and. Uh, and like Brits and Europeans, they didn't understand. They didn't appreciate how far it was from Halifax to British Columbia. And so they only got as far as Etobicoke, uh, where they worked in in the fields of Etobicoke, which is all housing now. They they worked on for far, you know produce, uh, hoeing, picking, whatever produce. They worked on on big vegetable. Uh, production farms. And they did that for about a year and a half. Then they continued uh, west, and we we got to uh, they got to Port Perry, Manitoba, and basically uh, said this looks like a good enough place. And they basically ran out of money, and uh, and so they stayed for twenty years. And are your folks still alive now? No, no. My uh, they've been gone for a while. My uh, neither of them lived a real old age. My father was 69. My mother was 72 when they when they died. So uh, they've been gone a while. Uh, how about brothers uh, and sisters? Uh, I'm the oldest of six. Uh, my younger brother died uh, about 20 years ago. Uh, he was he got meningitis when he was three years old, and and his health ne was never real good after that so um he he had health repercussions mm -hmm. as a result i'm sorry to hear that so that was my brother peter and but all my other siblings are uh, alive and well and i of course stay in touch with all of them i imagine growing up uh all you kids on a farm must have been very nice and it must have been it, yeah. it sounds like heaven no, it, it was. You know, winters are very cold in Manitoba, uh, and we're talking the 50s and the 60s, so uh, certainly didn't have a lot of the creature comforts that we all take for granted nowadays. But uh, no, I think the, I, I don't have any complaints about uh, 
you know, we, 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 yeah, there was a lot of, a lot of great things. Uh, we had a horse. Um, we had lots of area to run around, you know, all kinds of things. So, yeah, it was, in many ways, it was very nice. During the summers, would you would you be working then and, and helping out with the farm work? Yeah, my brother uh, Peter and I, uh, we we worked pretty well every day. Um, our main job was just hauling manure out. You know what I mean? We had a small dairy farm. Yeah, it was a forty acre small dairy farm. So we did that and other stuff, and uh, we didn't we didn't do. T- too many other jobs other than that was sort of our main duty you know what I mean it was constantly cleaning barns and and hauling the stuff and and spreading it out uh, on the fields kind of thing uh, and then you know there was stuff like bush clearing and uh, I remember working with my brother Peter uh, with a chainsaw and we would have been like you know 10 11 years old go out with a chainsaw and cut cords of wood uh, mind you, it was all poplar, so it's very soft wood, so it wasn't real, w- wasn't real difficult stuff to to cut down and haul out. So w- we had opportunities to do that, all that kind of fun stuff. And for uh, for interest, did you did you read a lot? Did you play games? Were you into comics? Um, how did you guys entertain yourselves? Just say during those cold winters. Well, we uh, I think I was about seven years old when we got a television. And of course, there was only one channel back then, so that was a little bit limited. And that was but, CBC. Yeah, would have been CBC. Right. And uh, I remember when I got to about eleven, one of our neighbors could get another channel, and we would go over on Saturday mornings and watch Horse Opera, which was <laughs> That's a, great. a yeah a movie and and uh, a movie that played every Saturday morning, and some of the movies were uh, were still. Um, uh, silent movies. Oh, sure. Yeah. Well, yeah, as a kid, I remember, too. I was born in 68, but we got three channels. You know, being city folk, we got three channels. Um, yeah. But, yeah, it was Beachcombers. It was Wayne and Schuster. It was whatever it happened to be on. That's what you got to watch. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I remember those shows as well. I never really watched Beachcombers. I think that was a little um, after, you know, my time oh, it would as be, a yeah. kid. Yeah. But uh, no, I am. Um, I, I did my fair share of reading. I, I remember reading uh, Les Misérables, or it was titled Jean Valjean in right. the, the the version we read, and being very moved by that book as a kid. Mm-hmm. And um, of course, my mother was a writer. I don't remember reading. I didn't read her stuff until I got to be an, a, probably a young adult. Um, I, I don't know why that is. I mean, she she wrote a lot of she sold romance stories to Australian and British. That that might be why it is. I mean, you're a young man; you may not be wanting to read romance stories yet. Yeah, and uh, I mean, she she wrote all kinds of stuff. She wrote uh, nonfiction uh-huh. articles. She wrote, uh, and she did. She wrote three books. The, the first one did the best, going going west with Annabelle. Uh, it's a kind of a book now that you'd probably find at a garage sale. Uh, or, or and you might find the Reader's Digest version more readily than you'd find the hardcover or the paperback version of it. Mm-hmm. But uh, that book is is basically the story of our our coming to Canada and the early days in Canada. 
I'm going to look for that. You know, I'm, I know I'll find it on Amazon or eBay. Yeah, oh yeah, Going West with Annabelle, I mean, uh, I haven't found anybody who read that book who didn't enjoy it immensely. And, uh, you know, her two sequels to that book, she first sold it to a British publishing company who then sold it to Canadian, American, Reader's Digest, etc. Um, but uh, it did the best of all of the three books, that's for sure. So were you, was yours a well-to-do family then, or did no. you work to, to make the ends meet? Yeah, oh no, we were n n nowhere near well-to-do. My my parents my uh, parents came over here with no money, really, and not much family support. I don't think their, either, either family was keen on them leaving England and coming to Canada. How come they did? Uh, what was the reason? Uh, the my father had gone to agricultural college and wanted to own his own farm. Uh, his father had managed farms for the British government, and um, and they had moved around a little bit doing that. And uh, and yeah, I mean his love. I think his first love was farming, and uh, so they didn't didn't see that as being possible in England to own their own farm and. Of course, in Canada, where there was lots of wide open space and and uh, there was lots of promotion to move to Canada amongst British people in the in the fifties, the early fifties. So, well, and I uh, guess Alberta. Well, you know, the Western provinces in Alberta is the one I think of as being maybe more in the the imagination of England at the time. Which was the the royal that married the divorcee and had the, the ranch in Alberta. I imagine that would have been people's romantic mindset, at least, of Western Canada. Yeah, uh, that, that was some um, prince. Name. Oh, for heaven's sakes. We can um, Google it later. Yeah, he, he was a twit, in my opinion, but uh, uh, anyways. Um, he was a bit of a black sheep. Yeah, he was. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, But, but he loved uh, Alberta. No, we got to give him credit for that. Yeah. Um, my My parents, of course... Uh, when they got off the boat in Halifax, did not appreciate how far it was to British Columbia, because that's where they were actually headed. Yeah. My mother told me that when they went to Canada House, the fellow there said, you know, British Columbia was the best place to go to in Canada, in his opinion. And um, and so, but of course they got off the boat in Halifax, and they, they you know, and it, it, it took them a little bit to realize how far away it was from where you know, they were, and so they went by train to Toronto and got their, their jobs in Etobicoke, which is western part of Toronto now, but uh, no, they, my parents came here with basically nothing, uh, when we got to Manitoba, they, they, my father had to find a job, he worked for farmers, he worked as a mechanic, uh, later on my mother worked, uh, no, we were you know, just basically working stiff uh, type of family. My, when I was six years old, my parents bought a 40-acre farm near Porsche la Prairie, but it, it, they couldn't make a living from the farm, so my father had uh, a job. Uh, you know, he had work outside uh, off the farm as well. He worked uh, different jobs. I remember him working as a mechanic and as a foreman and and things like that, and uh, 
and then eventually my mother went to work as a, she worked at the women's jail in Portage La Prairie, and she had hysterical stories to tell us about, you know, things that went on in that jail. Um, and um, I still laugh to, to, to think of them to, today, some of the stories she told us. Uh, she um, she worked as an occupational therapist at the Manitoba School, and, it, and the Manitoba School was an institution that housed uh, severely mentally ill uh, patients. Yes. And uh, so she did that for a while, um, and then they and then in 1975 they finally got the time and the, the the resources together that they could take a trip out to British Columbia. They went out to BC and they said, "Yeah, this is nice. We like this." And they came back, sold the farm, and they moved there. No kidding. Hey, in '76. So yeah. in '76. And so so yep. to what part? Uh, they moved to Courtney on the island on oh, Vancouver okay, yeah. Island. In Courtney Comox, they're close to each other. Yeah. 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 Uh, seventy-five or seventy. Uh, might have been seventy-five. I think they moved. Uh, Anyways, in, in in that area, they moved. I was already out of the house. Uh, I was already starting to work on Captain Canuck. Um, yeah, they they must have moved. Yeah, now that I think of, they must have moved in '76 because um, I had, you know, it was just shortly after I came out with issue number one and or number two that they moved. Uh-huh. So it, then, growing up though, was everybody happy or was it a little bit tense with the money? Um, how was it for you um, as a child? I, I think we were, um, you know, I don't think we were much different from most of the people in our community as far as income was concerned. We, uh, I think we were, um, a, you know, I don't know, poor might be a bit of an exaggeration, but yeah, no, we, we, we lived with a pretty humble means, I think. You know, for for a while, I remember it was just my father uh, working and uh, and some getting some revenue from the farm. It, it wouldn't have been very much. Mm-hmm. So yeah, it was pretty. Uh, you know, we didn't live in a fancy house. My father didn't drive a brand new car. He was a mechanic, mind you, so he was able to fix cars. Um, and he did work as a mechanic for a while, of course. But uh, no, I would say we were. Uh, I, I I don't know how to, how to um, just a normal family then. Yeah, just pretty your much. pretty normal family. Yeah, for yeah, how I grew up, at least had, normal. Yeah, yeah. We six six kids. I was the oldest of six. Yeah. So um, yeah, I you know we didn't have we didn't have a lot of money. So so your books then went, was a general store nearby, or did you have to order things from a catalog and get them shipped in? As far as books, we I remember going to the library at a pretty young age. My oh, mother. So you was, had all the the conveniences uh, of yeah. city life. Oh, okay. Because I've got family that lived we, up in yeah. Hutton. If they wanted something, they had to get it shipped. It would come on the train. Um, where I grew up, there's a general store you can get with, and it's Sears mail order. So you had yeah. uh, access to library and all the basic resources where you grew up then. In in Port La Prairie, in the town of Port La uh, Prairie. Okay. Um, and in fact, I think what was very instrumental in me becoming an artist was the sheriff of Portia La Prairie, his name was Jack Hazard. Uh, right he was an art he was an artist. Yeah. And he was also head of the Allied Art Club, which was I think a 
maybe even an international organization. And uh, he, um, when I was 11 years old, I was introduced to the Allied Art Club, and they allowed me, they kind of gave me a scholarship. They allowed me to attend classes for free. So I would go every Wednesday, and uh, I would attend classes, and uh, I, um, and then well, I particularly I, I started high school when I was thirteen because my my birthday is in October. So a lot of times I would stay after school, attend classes, and then a combination of hitchhiking and walking to get home. I, I had a seven mile journey to get home after classes were over. Were you a good student? Uh, at the Allied Art Club, I mean, I think so. Um, I mean, it, it wasn't, there really wasn't so much, there wasn't really instruction. It was a case where we would have models, we would have still life, and I would be given access to different uh, um, supplies. Uh, were you a bookish kid or more of a sports kid? Or what were your interests? I wasn't a bookish kid. Uh, I, I wouldn't call myself, I, I probably read a little more than the average kid, uh, but I wouldn't consider myself bookish at all, and I definitely wasn't very athletic. Uh, I rode a lot. I did a lot of horseback riding, but I didn't play hockey, and I, I when I played baseball, it was just, you know, a bunch of kids getting together playing baseball at school kind of thing. I wasn't on any team or wasn't, wasn't involved in any organized sports. Uh, I did a lot of drawing um, as a kid. I, my, I remember my Fridays and Saturday nights. I uh, all I wanted to do was watch a late movie, and uh, there was a bunch of stuff on before the late movie. It, it's not like you could switch channels and watch something else. You you had to watch hockey. I wasn't interested in watching yeah. hockey, but it was on. A few other people might watch it, um, and I would be drawing all that time. I'd be drawing for hours until the late movie started. So um, I guess I got CBC to thank for, you know, my having time to develop my drawing skills. So what were your artistic influences then? Yeah, maybe to, to pull back a bit, how do you make the jump from Les Miserables to comic books? You know, what, what came in the middle there? I remember reading Animal Farm too. And oh, that's Lord of the I just Rain. read that to my son. That's a beautiful book. Yeah. Yeah. No, those are classics. I remember those three books, reading those as a kid. And uh, and I found uh, all of them were, were very engaging. What was the other one? Yeah. Les Miserables, Animal oh, Farm, and what's the other one? Um, Lord of Flies. Lord of the Flies, Lord. that's beautiful too. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the kid stranded on the island? Yeah. Um, and, um, uh, you know... The did you read those because I made you read them at school, or did you discover them and, and find them on your own? Uh, two of them I read as part of school, yeah. and there were a few books that I read on my own. I believe Lord of the... I can't remember if Lord of the Flies was a school book or a just a read. Yeah, because I, I read those remember. when I was a kid, and I remember, oh, I've got to read this. And it wasn't until about 20 years later when I read them again and realized, wow, that was a great book. So how did you jump uh, to comics then? What, what came in the middle? Tell me about that. Well, I mean, I, I'm sure, I know I looked at comic books. I love Dr. Seuss. I remember reading lots of Dr. Seuss uh, when I was a kid. Yeah, it's beautiful. You know, even younger kid. Yeah. Um, 
and you know some of those, those children's books. I love children's books. I can remember looking at those as a kid. But and um, when I uh, well, really uh, getting into comic books was really as a result of my meeting Ron Leishman and deciding that we needed to do that. There should be a Canadian comic book series starring a Canadian superhero and that's when i realized i needed to seriously look at comic books so how did you meet ron then or mr leishman uh ron leishman i met him at church we're we can't remember it might have been late 71 or early 72 and uh and we got together shortly after we met and uh and right away we we talked about uh cartooning and and uh illustration and and very, very early on in, in our getting together, he proposed the idea that there should, that you know, there should be a Canadian comic book series. And we talked about that at length. Every time we got together, we would talk about it. And uh, uh, you know, eventually Ron did a drawing, uh, uh, you know, of a we, we called him Captain Canada at the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and then Captain Canuck, I, I we don't remember who came up with or who decided it should be Captain Canuck. Uh, but, you know, it was either Captain Canada or Captain Canuck. And uh, one day I went into a Hudson Bay store. I saw a sweatshirt in that store with a uh, a very, it was a, a really a, just a drawing of Superman, and they'd removed the, the, the emblem off of his chest, and then underneath it they called him Captain Canada. And... Um, so and and I said to myself I said to Ron I said well we're not going to use Captain Canada somebody's already mm-hmm. done something with it anyways and uh, and that's when you know we decided or at least I decided it it was going to be Captain Canuck. Oh. You know when I read around you know some of the conjecture is maybe it was inspired by Johnny Canuck or some of those uh, World War Two Canadian comics that we produced for a while. Um, although I mean the name Canuck was certainly uh, in common use anyway. Um, no, uh, yeah, you know the interesting thing is I did not hear about Johnny Canuck until I had completed issue number two, and then I got a call from the creator of Johnny Canuck, who and then enlightened me, and uh, and then somebody was he encouraging? Uh, I, I got, uh, what kind of a call was it? Oh yeah, no, it was, uh, and I met him. I met him years later when Canada posted that stamp series that included Johnny Canuck and Captain Canuck. And uh, no, he um, he just phoned me up and told me about it. And of course, it was all news to me. Uh Uh, So, and I then I you know I said, well, I got to find out more about this. And I got somebody to write an article, and we included an article about Johnny Canuck in the third issue of Captain Canuck. Uh And then somebody from BC sent me had done a strip called the Canuck Kid, and I included about uh, a, a number of strips uh, from the Canuck Kid in, I believe, it was issue number three as well. So you know, I mean, and then so all of this started coming out of the woodwork, and 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 so I could see that there was some history to the name Canuck, you know, that that had been used in other series, and yes. so that was. So, you're drawing crests, you're you're uh, draw, drawing signs, you're doing fashion design. At what point did you decide, or, or what led you to decide, 
you want to do that for a living and, and be the editor of and publisher of your own magazine, you have your own comic. When did you make that jump? Well, I, I, I came to that final conclusion. Like I said, Ron and I would get together uh, throughout every, now, you know, through 72, 73. In and around that period, he started to go out west and up north to work to raise money so he could support himself while he served a mission. Mm-hmm. Uh, he and I are both Latter-day Saints, members of the Church of Jesus Christ yes. of Latter-day Saints, commonly called Mormons. And uh, he decided he wanted to serve a mission, and there's no paid ministry in the church, and, and all missionaries have to be able to have the, the means to support themselves while they're serving for two years. So he needed he needed to get to work and get that money together. And uh, Ron, uh, you know, he's he's been a friend ever since I've met him. He's a really good guy. Um, he um, uh, he left on his mission somewhere in '75. I don't know exactly when, but it was before I I got really working on the first edition and um and I don't know uh, before he even left I don't I mean I told him I was going to I was going to do something I don't know if he really believed me that I'd be able to pull it off kind of thing uh but he had too many other things on his mind when I was reading that letter that uh Pete penned for issue three he seemed surprised and somewhat awestruck that you'd done so much work yeah yeah well I'm surprised that he was surprised so (laughs) well there you go uh, (laughs) Yeah, but uh, yeah, it was yeah, it was neat to have him write that. And he he stayed with us for about two or three months after he got back off his mission, and then at that point he decided he was going to become a school teacher and, and go to teachers college, and uh, and get married. So uh, are he you had a still in touch with him? Oh yeah, yeah. He I we, and he's healthy and pretty, everything's all right. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. He actually he um he worked as a school teacher for about twenty or twenty two years. Yes. Then he had a heart attack and he retired. Uh-huh. So and in, and he's been working. He does a a feature called Tuna Day. Mm-hmm. So if you go to tunaday.com, you can see the kind of stuff he does. Yeah, I'll check that out. He does he does really good gag cartoons, and he's a really good writer for gag cartoons as well. He did a couple of strips. Uh, he did a strip uh, that ran. Uh, in limited um, about a teacher, and it was hilarious. <laughs> you um, have so much fodder, so much material to use as a cool teacher. Yeah. Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh yeah. No, he and he used it so well. I would I would be hurting sometimes reading some of his strips. They were so funny. And uh, but you know it just wasn't. It's a very difficult field. It's always been a difficult field to get into to be a syndicated cartoonist. And uh, he gave it a good shot. He just couldn't make enough uh, of a living from it, and uh, and and basically became a teacher. And but he, he's he's doing fine. You know, I'm looking at his website right now. He does have a very nice style. Yes. Yeah. Well, he, you will see now that you've seen his site. Uh, to a day, people would subscribe to uh, his service, and his cartoons are used in posters all over the world. Uh, it's so funny because every now and then I'll go somewhere, I'll be a mall. Even in our church, I've seen his cartoons used on posters. And it's such a, it's so funny to see that because uh, they're not credited. You know what I mean? They don't have any yeah. name or anything. And they're used, to, for, you know, so, and that's what people would pay for. They would pay to, uh, he would give them a cartoon every single day 
if they subscribed and they they could have use it in any way they wanted to. So they got a lot of use. Yeah, no, he's got really nice work. I'm just looking at it now. The style, it's purely his own. Um, when I look at it, it gives me the the some of the the line art look and feel of seventies uh, of Mad. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Sergio Aragonés. Oh, a little yeah, bit of that. I don't know if that was his influence at all, but it's it's different, of course. But I I, I can see maybe what some of his inputs were. Well, I I, I don't I think uh, anybody who loved to draw was influenced by Mad Magazine. I you know I remember as a kid looking at Mag Magazine. Uh, you know it was uh, I I had a friend who got it. You know what I mean, and uh, who who, yeah. who bought them. And and he was a pretty funny guy himself, and he'd write some really funny stuff. So would this be a contraband magazine that you borrowed from your friend? Uh, the Mad Magazine. Yeah, I mean, but did you have it in your own house, or would you read your friends? Um, I you know I don't remember if I could take it home, or if I just could just read it in his company. I don't remember mm -hmm. if he allowed me actually to, you know, <laughs> take it out of his possession, kind of thing. You know, yeah. in those days, you know. Going out and buying, uh, you know, a, a copy of of any magazine was not just a a, a, a a light thing to do. No, it was an investment. You had to have thirty cents first of all. Yeah, yeah. No, it, it, people people didn't have the kind of throwaway uh, money that kids do nowadays. No, no, that's true. Well, you know, when I look at your comic, um, I notice for many of the advertisements. Um, and and the masthead at the bottom. It's eighteen fifty four Portage Avenue, Winnipeg. Yep. So now was that your home? Was that a storefront? Uh, that was no. That was uh, uh, I was an office. I rented an office in a building. Uh, building still stands. In fact, I, I I popped in about three years ago just to see what was up there now. Yeah. But uh, no, a lot of those ads um, were what they referred to is um, paper per reply or, or paper inquiry or whatever terminology they used back then. But, uh, you know, they wouldn't pay you to, to run the ad. Um, you know, the, all the replies... You'd get a portion of whatever you sold. Yes. Yeah. So, you know, you, you see all those ads that you would typically see in comic books back then. And, um, yeah, I think it's called paper inquiry. But so uh, people would... Um, the, the orders would come to me. I would take my share, send the order on to the company, and they were all American companies, and they would fulfill the order. Mm -hmm. oh. But none of them were, were great money makers. You know what I mean? We might make a hundred bucks or something off of one of those ads, and 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 thought that was great. So, but you know, you had ambition, though. I mean, I, I'm looking at a full page ad for American Circle Corp. You know, if you want your your flip knife or your X-ray specs, um, yeah. the atom pistol yeah. boy, I remember, oh, magic soap powder. I remember all of this. Yeah. So, I mean, you, you, yeah, you made I, an effort to reach out to some big advertisers, big comic advertisers. Yeah, I, yeah, I, I know. I, I spent a little too much time working on trying to get ads, but I, 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 I wanted those ads. I really wanted those ads in the comic book because it made it, you know, it they, it they were in every... Right. Yeah, you know what I mean. Yeah, it was part of. It seemed to be part of the program. It's me, real. You know I mean? Look, I've got advertising. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. Dog tags. Yeah, I remember all of this. 
Canyon yep. the House Department, DT83. Yeah, I love that. Yeah. Well, so what did your parents think about that? You know, because now you're making a big investment. You've got a, a retail space for the, or office space you're working out of. This is your full-time job. With, were your mom and dad supportive, troubled? Um, yes. Oh no, they were very no, they were very supportive. In fact, uh, I wouldn't wouldn't wasn't able to. I borrowed seven thousand dollars, which was a lot of money. That's a lot of money uh, today. Yeah, yeah. Uh, seven thousand dollars I borrowed and was able to get credit with a, a printer, and I wouldn't have gotten that seven thousand dollars without my parents co-signing for it. So, uh, and 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 my younger brother, one of my younger brothers, worked for me for a little while too. So which one? Uh, my brother Robin John. Robin John. Uh, who now lives in in uh, Edmonton? He would have been like a teenager uh, back in his uh, late. Uh, let me see, later teens. I think he was. I think he was driving. I have to. I can't remember. He, he may not have been driving yet, but uh, he worked for me for a little while. Mm-hmm. He was a smart kid. And uh, no, my parents were were quite supportive. Um, now, at the same time, I was also doing a few other things. Uh, for other people, you know, I was still doing a little bit of freelance work here and there as well. So, but at at so, at one po- at some point, I had to just because it was so time consuming, uh, I had to just focus on on working on the comic book. Now, for those and first been, couple of issues, you did almost everything yourself. Um, well, you did virtually everything yourself. Um, as time went by, I see that other people became involved. Um, so George yep. Freeman, Jean-Claude Saint-Aubin, um, other names pop up. Um, tell me, what, when did it grow beyond uh, you and, and Rod Leishman? How did these other partners get involved? Well, Ron, Ron was never involved in the production. Nope, the concept. Um, like, yeah. like he, he, was in, he was in France serving his mission. Sure. And when he got back, he, he, you know, we, we weren't even publishing anymore when he got back. Yeah. You know, there was a lull there for a few years. And um, and he he had decided that he didn't he, this was not for him anyways and he really wanted to be a teacher, but um, in the case of George Freeman, um, uh, he just showed up one day at my door mm-hmm. in my at my office and uh, he'd seen the first issue. I was uh, getting I was nearly finished the second issue when he showed up, and um, and when I saw his work, I was just you know. Aw- it, it, you know, almost overcome. It was, you know, it was so good. Mm-hmm. George Freeman, I was just immediately, uh, you know, just knew that he was a terrific talent. Yeah. And uh, so, and I, you know, I said to him, you know, I, I'd love it if you could come and work with me and help me. And, uh, and, and I can't remember, where, and, and he was keen and all that, and then he went away. He was working at the time, uh, he was doing uh, tombstone engraving or designing you know the things that went on to tombstones, and he'd mentioned that to me, and he, and he kind of gave me an idea of what where he was. He didn't tell me the company he was working for, and so I had heard from him in in a, a month, in a month or so, and I and I didn't want to lose him, you know. So I remember going through the 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 phone book, phoning a number of these, um, you know, uh, tombstone engravers, uh, and uh, never did find him. 
And I'm thinking, oh, no, I mean, I'll never, you know, and then he just showed up again. I said, George, you know what I mean? Like, I got to stop you there. Was there a multitude of tombstone engravers in Portage la Prairie named George Freeman? Uh, this was in Winnipeg. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, and, and he was closer to Selkirk. Oh, okay. So there was a few. There was no I internet re- back then, though. I guess you just have to look up every Freeman in all the separate phone books you'll find in your travels, I guess, at the library, right? It, it could not have been easy. Yeah. No, I, I mean, I, I don't think I was as smart about hunting down people as I think I am now. But well, we didn't I, have I too did... many options back then, though. I mean, there was no. the phone book or think... 411, and that's it. Yeah. And, and, um, and, you know, I'm, I'm not even sure I had his last name now that, now that you mention it, because I think I would have just looked in the book, but sure. he wasn't living at home anymore. Uh, so, but anyways, well, you know, he came along and the first job he did was that very short, um, story, uh, John episode in issue number two. Uh, for John Edwards said the second feature in yeah. the back of the book. Yep. Yeah, and I think I really it's enjoyed that. Pages. Yeah, you know what? It, and, it tickled uh, my John Carter Warlord of Mars bone. Yeah, and that was a Which that the character that character was created by Ron Leishman, and it was uh, you know very much a, uh, a a John Carter of Mars copy kind of thing, but it inspired had its own by homage to yeah, inspired by the John Carter of Mars, okay. but. Uh, uh, but it definitely had its own feel uh, to it, and uh, uh, and we, we I think we differentiated it enough as we went on with it. So and then he uh, he inked number three for me, and then he penciled uh, number four, and then after that, other than about three issues, he penciled all pretty well all the issues of what we refer to as the fifteen. Uh, uh, issues in the original mm-hmm. series. Did you read any Edgar Rice Burroughs books as a kid, or was that Ron Leishman's? Uh, I that was Ron Leishman, and I don't remember reading mm-hmm. any of those books uh, as a kid. John Carter, I have, but I don't. Uh, John Carter Mars. I think it came out 1914. I think it was published in All Stories, something like that. Before that, seven years before, there's another book called Gulliver of Mars which John Carter was inspired by. Uh, oh, yeah. And that came out, I think, 1907. So okay. you could quite honestly say uh, John Edwards was inspired by Gulliver of Mars. Yeah, all right. Anyway, that's for the publicity what... department. That's all I'm saying. Yeah, yeah. I really liked it. Well, yeah. Well, I mean, uh, uh, George did a beautiful job of that first story. And, uh, you know, we we we, uh, we dropped it after a while. I, I think for a few reasons uh we wanted to try some other uh, other stories that we kind of felt you know might have a better chance of catching on so well you know your your letter columns too i really enjoyed that um where you know people would send in their letters to the editor and you'd respond right in there um so what kind of feedback were you getting when did you start to get feedback in fact tell me about that when you started to get letter mail uh, very quickly. It must have been exciting. Oh, yeah. No, we got ton- got tons of mail. Really? Remember, this is before Internet, and that's how we communicated it back then. Letter, we had their, yeah. Yeah. And uh, people would send in their orders for club membership and subscriptions, and we got hundreds. Of, we got, uh, I think we had about 3,000 subscribers, 
uh, we, um, you know, we, um, uh, you know, we we got lots of letters. One of the letters came from a 13-year-old kid by the name of Mark Shaneblum, who later went on to become a writer. He, he still works as a, as a writer. He he was working in um, as a uh, college in colleges in in Quebec. He's mm-hmm. now in Ottawa. But uh, so, and I still know him today. Uh, he, he, I could tell he was a good writer when, when he wrote back back then at age thirteen, and um, and and I just stayed in touch with him. You know what I mean? Over yeah. all these years. So, but yeah, we got lots of lots of good mail. Yeah, it must have felt so good when that. Do you remember when the first piece of mail came in? No, uh, not really. I mean, I do remember when the post office was on strike, uh, which was... Oh, that coincided with it, didn't it? Yeah, that was... Um, that must have been so frustrating. Yeah, that was about 76, I think, yeah. they went on strike. Yeah. And, that, uh, and I remember being able to go over to the post office and pick up some mail that I think, you know, what was delivered to the post office but wasn't delivered by carrier. Sure. And, uh, you know, the mail wasn't flowing, but there was some there. I remember going to pick it up. But And I remember one of the guys at the post office sort of apologizing for the fact that, you know, I wasn't getting my mail, and, and he knew that, you know, we kind of relied on those orders to keep, you know, pay the rent kind of thing, yeah. you know what I mean? Now, um, Jean-Claude Saint-Aubin, uh, when did he come along? Uh, yeah, he now just goes by Claude, Claude. and it's uh, Jean-Claude Saint-Aubin, Saint-Aubin, oh, okay. Saint-Aubin, yeah. yeah, Claude Saint-Aubin. Uh, he, um, he came along when um, we were, let me see, I think we were working on number three when he came along. It wasn't that long after George, and he literally just, again, showed up at my door. He had picked up the comic book in Montreal, he packed it back backpack, got on a bus or a train, came out, and uh, with the 20 words of English that he spoke, he said, I have come to help you. So <laughs> yeah. And, uh, yeah. so we, we we literally took him in, and I mean literally took him in. Sure. With, it was probably with, a one-way uh, ticket, right? Because he didn't have much money? Yeah. yeah. I just imagine and, how much uh, money I had at that age. It would have been one way. Yeah. Well, the funny thing is I remember to this day, the very first time I laid eyes on Claude, he was playing catch with my younger brother who was visiting me. Yeah. We were living in Winnipeg, and he was playing catch with my brother, uh, 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 Tim. And, uh, and then and he, and he, I met him and, uh, and, you know, told me, and, and, you know, he needed a place to stay. So, you know, I had him stay with us. And then he moved in with George. And then it just it seemed absolutely perfectly natural to me back then that that's the way it should be. Sure. And I, I, I've often said of both George and Claude that they were godsend to me. You know what I mean? They they came along at a, 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 when I needed them. Uh, we worked. It was we enjoyed working together. Uh, they were both very talented guys. So no, it was great. Now the uh, how how uh, far and wide was was Captain Canuck distributed? Were you selling uh, into the, the U.S.? I think you were. Uh, very little, very little in the beginning. Yeah. Um, the the uh, issue number one, we I printed two hundred thousand copies of issue number one. Oh my goodness! And that 
And that was all yeah, done on spec by the printer or on faith that uh, yeah. that they'd get paid. Uh, yeah, I eventually paid them. Must have had uh, and, uh, But yeah, you know, yeah, they they all. Hey, are they still know, in business? That printer. Yeah. What what what's the name of that printer? Um, they've changed their name. Um, uh, boy, they were. Uh, that you, if you look in the in the first issue, it starts with an S. It's. Um, I got it here. Um, I, I'll have to, I'd have to go look myself. Okay, no worries. But, no, because I want to mention them. I mean, if they did that and they're still in business, they deserve. I want to give them credit. Yeah, and they, um, like I said, they've changed their name, I, and they may have. I, I'm not even sure if they're still the same name to this sure. day. They changed they their name about sold. 15 years ago. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, they they were great. Uh, the guy that I dealt with was a great guy. Um, and, uh, and you know, when I go to Winnipeg, I keep meaning to to give him a call and see how he's doing. But uh, but uh, so because I see letters to the editor uh, coming in from people in the U.S. You know, and later on talking about how they appreciate the yeah. Canadian sensibility and it's I don't think they use the word jingoistic, but you know, he's he's less shoot first, has questions later, and more he's a super agent, not a superhero. You know, there there's a dis difference right there. Uh, the first issue, uh, only uh, 110,000 copies were actually initially distributed, and there were a number of border cities that did get copies, yeah. like Detroit and Buffalo and, and other cities like that. Uh, and then it was just strictly an experiment on, on, uh, uh, with the distributors. And same with issue number two, uh, and all the way up until issue number nine, and then Starting with issue number nine, uh, we uh, were distributed all across the United States, pretty, all over. Uh, and, we, and Captain Connect was the very first Canadian comic book to get uh, U.S. distribution. Now, as a 25-year-old uh, young man, starting out with your first comic title, how did you make that connection? How did you get that distribution? Well, I actually was working on that long before I even, you know, I made, I, I did the research to find out who the, the different distributors were, and then I wrote letters. Yeah. And uh, and then one distribution company, and that would have been probably somewhere in '73, I think. Uh, I'm, I'm guessing '73. Yeah, it would have been '73. Uh, first got a hold of me, so that was. You know, that was the first I made contact with a distributor. Was at least a, a good year and a half, to, you know, before I even started working on the comic book. So I, I I had to find out how the whole thing worked. You know, the the publishing, the printing, the distribution, um, how how one generated income from a project like this, the ad sales. All of that stuff, I, uh, you know. I Did you have to worry find about copyright or or get clearance to use any of the images? Uh, how did you uh, navigate all that? Well, um, you don't have to say anything the, incriminating. No, 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 I, I, <laughs> right. I don't. Because I remember you used a postcard I read, and it had a picture of Jean Drapeau. Uh, you learned after that was inserted into the comic, so. Yeah. 
No, the the um, in the case of the photographs, those were taken out of National Geographics, and, and and what I did is I wrote a letter to them after it was published, saying, "I hope you don't mind." I used <laughs> That's the beautiful. Photos. And I got a, lo- a nice letter back saying, "No problem." Really? You know, we'll... That's yeah. so great. Do you still have that? I wish I. Yeah, I. You know, I don't think I do. Uh, I, I, you know, I, I was pretty good at saving stuff. I don't, uh, I have not seen that letter. Now, what happened in 1992 is that I, uh, the, um, the, the National Archives. Yeah, you gave all your original back. material to the, okay, I'm interrupting. Go ahead. I'm excited about that. Yeah, the, um, the National Archives wanted a whole bunch of stuff including, uh, you know, the scripts, the original scripts yeah. and and original art and stuff like that. They bought some of it, and, and then after a while, uh, you know, they would just take donations. But sure. uh, they bought a whole bunch of stuff from me, and and, uh, and including a box of uh, all of that stuff, which they still have. Mm-hmm. And, you know, one of the things uh, that would have been in that box is, CBC contacted me shortly after the first issue came out and wanted to do, they did a two-part Captain Canuck radio play, which was rather campy. Really? Who was the voice yeah. talent? Do you remember? No, I don't remember. Ah, I'm going to uh, look for that. Okay. It wouldn't have, wouldn't have meant anything to me. Uh, those names uh, wouldn't have, you know, I, I wouldn't have known who they were, I don't think. But, um, That's so they, exciting, um, though. I mean, I'm excited for you, the 25-year-old, to get contacted. Yeah. They want to produce a radio play. Yeah, and you know, it was it was all good. I mean, sure. it was all good, and I, and they, and it was, um, and so it was done in '75, and they were only like probably five minutes each, I gotta or something find like that. I, yeah, I can't remember. But, uh, no, that was '92 that the archives took the original work. Yes. Yeah. And then and now, in '95, the, Canada Post produced a stamp of Captain Canuck. Yes. That must have felt good. Correct. Yes, that was uh, the stamp was great, um, and one of the reasons it was great is because they actually paid to use it. They didn't pay a lot of money, but uh, uh, it was it was uh, it was okay. You know, we were sure. quite happy with it. They, they they paid for the use of the the art. They paid for. I did some other artwork for them. Uh, that was used for promoting it, and and they paid for all of that stuff. And they they did some licensing with the art as well. They did uh, T-shirts and mouse pads and and uh, uh, car uh, postcards and a few other things. And they paid for the rights to do that too. So it was all good. Going back to the run, Captain Canuck in the first incarnation ran, what, 14 issues and then 15, I think, you published later. Am I right? Uh, yeah, 14 issues plus the summer, summer special. special. yeah. And yeah. at what point did your incoming uh, revenue start to meet outgoing expenses? When did you, did it, did it pay for itself at, at some point? Um... Now and then, mm-hmm. you know, um, like, uh, so I, you know, I did the first three issues and basically ran out of money. Um, and, and a lot of that was, I was, I was making mistakes. I, I, my print runs were too big. I was paying too much for my printing. As good as the printing was, I was paying about three times 
for printing what I would have paid if I would have had it printed in Sparta, Illinois, where 98% of all the comic books were printed at, at the World Press Building, a huge, huge facility in Sparta, Illinois. It's gone now. It's been gone for probably 15 years at least. Yeah. But uh, we, and then when I started up again with issue number four, we got all the printing done down in Sparta because it was, like I said, a third of the price of what I paid in Canada. And and I also adjusted my pre- my print runs too. Um, what one of the things that we were able to do back then was I was able to get my returns given back to me. I was going to ask very, you about that. Yeah, because if yeah. they didn't all sell through, I noticed you selling them in later issues. You know, number one yeah. was eighty cents, and then number two was sold out. And um, so you got them all. They didn't rip the covers off. They they sent them back to you. Yeah, oh, we good. got an awful lot of them back. Some of them were not uh, useful, you know, yeah. not, not sellable anymore. But uh, and and it was really just out of kindness they did that mm-hmm. um, because it was you know a hassle on their part. Uh, and in what we did with a lot of those that they were bagged, I sold a lot of copies to jobbers who would bag them three to a bag and sell them at Kmart for ninety nine cents, kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So a lot of them were sold all over the states too that way too this is this was even before we got US uh distribution uh, there were jobbers already bagging uh you know the the returns that we we sold to them for pennies literally pennies well, and that was very common too 70s and even into the early yeah. 80s i remember it at the retail chains you'd see bags of two or three comics the most enticing on the front and then whatever was in the middle who knew uh, yeah, like that format, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now we we um, what we did, you know, when I realized that we, uh, for example, I had something like eighty, not eighty thousand. I had about fifty thousand copies of number one that I didn't know what to do with. So, and then we we also had about that same number of number two left over. So we did our own bagging at the beginning. And uh, and what we did to make the package a little more attractive is we included a uh, a 3D diorama that you colored and cut out, and uh, and so we did a lot. We did thousands and thousands of those kind of packs, and those sold very well for us too. They uh, some some of the distributors would sell out of those, totally sell out of them, so that there'd be no returns on them. The merchandising, I think, is is so critical. And I mean, now having talked to a few people, I see. But you were so ambitious too, because I, I mean, what there there were uh, T-shirts, stickers, these three D dioramas that you mentioned. Um, you had so much merchandising uh, that you conceived of too. How did you manage all that? Well, I knew. Uh, well, I I was looking for revenue uh, sources, and I knew that I needed. Um, I knew that I wasn't getting making enough from all the the revenue sources that I had coming in, and you know that's just a was just sort of a natural consequence mm-hmm. of of that. Now, I did get a license agreement very very early on after issue number one came out, which also helped, and that was with a company called Tamil Shanter, and Tamil Shanter did Captain Canuck tops. They did uh, short sleeve, long sleeve, and they also did pajamas. Yeah, and uh, and they did a they did a pretty good job with them. And um, 
so that helped a bit. They didn't give us a lot of money, but uh, it, it was all helpful. And it was there was a few other licensing agreements that came along. Uh, um, there was iron on crest, iron on crest, engraved plaques. I'm just looking uh, now. Yeah, and and that was that was Mr. Schachter who uh, I worked for as a crest designer, uh-huh. and that was his idea to do the iron on crest, and he was a big big help to me. Um, he he was he, he became more like an uncle to me, you know, a a, 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 a kindly uncle to me, you know what I mean? And um, so yeah, I I mean there's so much great help and support that I got from people like that uh, that that you know helped us. Uh, carry on kind of thing so never didn't you see i should back up but when back in 73 when i was starting to get really serious about doing this you know writing letters to distributors trying to you know find out how to do things um i was thinking of just you know dealing with maybe marvel or dc but i thought of it and then i quickly i never contacted them i just rejected the idea thinking they're not going to be interested in in a canadian superhero and uh, so I did send a letter to Harlequin Romance, and I don't know why I picked them, but it, it, they were just a, a big publisher. Your mom wrote uh, some romance books you mentioned. Yeah, and that maybe that was why. I, I, I can't around remember. Yeah, uh, and so, and they were interested. They actually sent a guy to Winnipeg to meet with me. He took me to lunch, the whole bit, and I only had... This would have been 73, um, and I only had like three or four pages of art to show, no story yet, and, um, and, and, but he liked the concept, the guy I met with, they, you know, they, they liked the concept, and they said, uh, yeah, we'll, we'll publish this, and, uh, you know, and they, we talked about what I would need to do, and they'd want me to move to Winnipeg, or to Toronto, etc., uh, I don't remember any of that bothering me, but what happened was there was a, an accountant at JD Products where I was working, and he said, "No, no, no, don't go sign with these guys because you're gonna, you're you're not going to have any rights. They're gonna they're gonna own all the rights." Uh, and I didn't even you know that part of it really hadn't faced me yet. You know what I mean? That whole idea of intellectual property. You know, I wasn't. You know, it's not on people's come, radar until you you realize, oh yeah, George Schuster doesn't own any part of Superman, and yeah, and the loss of control, yeah, yeah. I mean, of course, I didn't know that story. I mean, but uh, and and but basically, what what convinced me? He said, no, you set up your own publishing company, and he says there's government money that you can get. You can there'll be loans and grants you can get from the government to get started. And and he said he might have to to start up in some place like Churchill, Manitoba, but you know if you go there, uh, they'll give you the money. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. uh, never did get a dime, and um, but but did you know have meetings and fill out forms and. So do you think you got uh, bum advice, or do you think that the advice was sound? Well, in the end, I think it was pretty good advice because if I would have signed up with Harlequin. Uh, I, I, I'm pretty sure that they. I don't think I would have retained any rights, and I think it could have simply been a matter of I. I may, might have done an, a few issues, and they could have found easily found somebody better than me. 
you know, just, uh, okay, well, Mr. Conley, we don't need you anymore. Goodbye. Yeah, thank you for <laughs> so, your input, and uh, yeah. good luck in future endeavors. Yeah. And next thing, yeah. Captain Canuck is on the front of a bodice ripper, like uh, Fabio yeah. or whatever his name yeah, is. Yeah, yeah, you know, who knows who what knows? could have happened. Yeah, I mean, I was definitely interested in their offer. I remember thinking, oh, boy, this this sounds good to me. And sure. And then, and, but, you know, but the idea of being able to, you know, do my own publish, have my own publishing company and get money to start it up with that, you know, that was really enticing to me. And, um, so, and that's why I went that route. And then after a while, couldn't get the government money, you know, like, and, you know, kept thinking it eventually we would get some, never did. And, you know, of course, uh, you know, I was committed to, to, to go my own way. And, and fortunately, you know, I found the resources and that was with the help of parents and, and, uh, the printer and, you know, et cetera. Now, yeah, around, I forget, maybe issue 10 or 11, Comley Comics became CKR and you moved from Winnipeg to, uh, Calgary. What is it? Five yeah. Street Southeast Calgary. Um, what made what led to that transition and that move? Well, in after issue number three, I'd run out of money. We'd ha- actually had issue number four completed, but I I just didn't have the funds to to go to press. So there was an opportunity. Uh, my wife and I had been married in Cardston at the the, the Latter Day Saint Temple in Cardston, yep. and somebody there uh, wanted me to come and run the newspaper, the the small weekly newspaper yep. there. So. And my artists were game for the idea, and so we went out there, and we felt it would give us some financial support to do the comic book. So we all moved to Cardston, the small town of Cardston, Alberta, and um, uh, we, and in fact, uh, Claude Sennebay joined the church, became a Latter-day Saint in, in Cardston, and that was a, a really neat experience for all of us. And uh, so we were in, in Cardston for about five months. We ran the newspaper. Uh, we, we did some work on Captain Canuck, but we found we, we just could not generate enough income for everybody to survive on this little weekly newspaper. Yeah. And so after five months, we moved up to Calgary. Uh, we basically all went to work. Uh, George went back to Winnipeg. Claude and I stayed in Calgary. We both went to work as, as commercial artists for different companies and uh, and but i started looking for uh for people to back back a new um venture to do it again to start up again i should say to, or to continue the series and eventually i found uh, a fellow by the name of ernie casas who who died probably 20 years ago now um and so he came along and was interested in being an investor and and we got ckr productions going and uh so uh and and then we we published issue number four and then we and i was able to get george and claude uh back working with me and uh and we continued on and and uh but basically uh ran out of money uh before we could get issue number 15 off the ground and unfortunately, we made uh, some of the same mistakes I made first time around, which was kind of frustrating to me because I, I kind of felt that we should go a little different direction, and we, and uh, I just wasn't getting, I didn't feel I was getting that support from the other two investors, uh, and 
you know, so we, you know, uh, un, like I said, we made some mistakes. We we didn't go after licensing like we should have. I, I knew we needed to go after that kind of stuff. We had some interest in companies, and and we just weren't going after it. We were spending uh, too much on on the the printing. Um, you know, we weren't we weren't handling the distribution properly. Uh, there was just a, a few mistakes we were making. Some of them I think we could have avoided. But uh, anyway, so uh, so in, uh, in 1980, yeah, at the end of 1980, uh, we disbanded again, and it wasn't until 93 that I started up again. This time uh, with another partner, and and I think we had learned quite a bit. And so I did Captain Canuck Reborn for for four issues. I also did a newspaper strip. And uh, so uh, and so that's how we got reborn. And that's that, where uh, the character changed from Tom Evans to Darren Oak. Yes. You know, in that time, you know, I was reading that uh, reborn series, uh, the next series in '93, and your your art style had really matured over the intervening time. You know, your lines and your colors. Uh, I was really impressed. I really, I really liked that work. Well, thank you. And I also got um, some other good artists involved. Um, Leonard Kirk, who is like one of the top illustrators, he, he uh, worked with me in some of those early issues as well. I think he, uh, number two, or what, I can't remember what issue, uh, I have to look. Uh, well, I think he did pencils for number one. Is it number one? Anyways, uh, yeah. No, it was... Um, you know, unfortunately, when I started uh, Captain Knuck Reborn, uh, that was just at the very beginning of uh, when comic book sales started to plummet. In the early 90s, there was a, a number of factors that were cutting into comic book sales. They reached their pinnacle in about 91. And in around 93, they really started to drop because video games beca started to become so popular and so good and so appealing yeah, to that so. audience and there was a lot of there was a lot of other factors as well but that was one of the main contributing factors was the advent of the very popular yeah. video game yeah that makes a lot of sense you know i remember when they switched from the uh uh they switched to direct sales i guess that was when around the early 80s and that really changed everything yeah. because now i couldn't find the book i wanted i had to go to I love these stores, so it wasn't a problem, but I had to go to Golden Age Collectibles or I had to go yeah. to the comic shop. And and so that just, everything changed. And then you're right, yeah, in the early 90s, it changed again with the video games. And I guess that did really, you know, strike at a blow. That I think, and yeah. I don't, well, I guess all the extra things they tried to do to make them more commercially viable, like selling variant covers. And I mean, ultimately now comics are five bucks each and that's so much money. Um, yeah, yeah. what you say is true. I hadn't thought about that recently. Yeah, well, the, the other big mistake that a lot of people feel they made, too, was you know raising the cover prices too high uh, and pandering to the collectors too much. I agree with you. You know, you know they, uh, all the, I can't yeah, touch it if it's not a perfect 9.8 and uh, sealed in the, uh, in the package. They, they really started to focus way too much on the collectors. And, yeah. And, uh, you know, and, and, you know, when they raised the prices, uh, and they 
yeah, the, 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 there was a, there was a number of factors, and and they all contributed. Well, now when people buy comics, they're forty year old men, and they're getting them. They're buying five, and they get three of them CGC graded immediately and sealed in yeah, a vault. Yeah, and yeah. I like. Yeah. I really did. Uh, I'm not saying it was better when I was a kid. I'm not saying that, but I really like the idea of you got the spinner rack, and I want that one for thirty five cents. Uh, that was the yeah. best. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Well, you can still go to uh, chapters and, and spin the spinner, right? Yeah, that's true. Uh, uh, mind you, they're 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 three ninety nine a copy now, but uh, uh, I got kids to feed. That's a lot of money. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know. So, a question for you. I mean, Captain Canuck, tell me, for you, tell us who was Captain Canuck in your mind in nineteen seventy five when issue one came out. And because I'm going to ask you well, again, who is he now? Yeah. You know, with hindsight and you've, time has gone by and you've ch you've changed. Who was he then? I, I don't think the, the, the original character in my mind has changed all that much. I saw him as a, a very patriotic, part native, a very fit young man. Uh, he and his brother uh, are for, uh, they're Mounties at first. And uh, then they're kind of kind of conscripted, almost into CISO. Mm -hmm. uh, they're Mounties, and and CISO approaches the RCMP and says, "We want some of your your better, uh, you know, officers because we want them for a new organization that's going to be involved in national security." And you know that was the, you know the idea, and and so both Tom and his brother are picked by CISO and. It's not like they're forced to become agents for CISO, but they're they're kind of um, sought out and uh, they join, and and so I, I saw Tom as you know a, a pretty idealistic, you know you're 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 pretty standard good guy type of character, you know he doesn't have any hang-ups, he doesn't have any addictions, uh, none of this kind of stuff. Um, He's pretty straightforward, uh, straight A kind of guy, and uh, and then in the story, his brother gets injured, and he uh, so that kind of impacts uh, you know uh, him and going forward. But uh, no, I, I don't. You know, the, I I wanted him to be part native because I felt that when that made him more Canadian. Yeah, you know, more of a real Canadian, and uh, to have those kind of roots. But other than that, I, I just wanted him to be your, your standard good guy. And had has he changed or evolved in your mind uh, in the nineties and the two thousands? No. I, now you license I mean, it to, to another, I know. But yeah, who is no, he now? they have been. No, they have been pretty. Uh, they they're really sticking to you know when I first met with Fadi Kim and then Paul Gardner. And Dean Henry, those are the guys who are behind the reboot, um, and Fatty Akin, most of all. Um, uh, and so, they, they, you know, I, I I was pretty up uh, straightforward with them, and right at the beginning, I said, you know, I, you know, I'm not interested in talking to you if you want to, you know, make him into an alcoholic or, you know, if you want to go the Iron Man route. Yeah, you know I, he you know, had I every mean, vice, you know, and still he yeah, emerged a hero. Yeah, and 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 for one thing, it's already been done. Yeah. 
Yeah, I'm not knocking on yeah. that. Yeah. Yeah, I know. And, uh, you know, I wanted him more in the vein of the traditional hero kind of thing, and, and I wanted certain standards met as far as how much violence there was going to be depicted. Uh, I didn't want, you know, um, uh, him associated with alcohol or... I didn't want him to be a smoker or any of that kind of stuff. I wanted him to be pretty, you know, pretty ideal kind of character. And uh, and and no problem. None of them had any problem with that. They they felt that that's the way he should remain. And you know, they were all fans. They were uh, uh, the interesting about Fatty Hakim is that he was born in Canada. Yeah. Um, his parents uh, came over, uh, you know, before he was born, but. Uh, and he's very, very North American, you know what I mean, um, and very much into pop culture, and and successful with all his his businesses. And uh, but when he was a seven year old, his father gave him twenty five cents, or I think it was twenty five cents, and said you can go buy anything you want. And what he did is he went in and he bought the first issue of Captain Canuck. Really? Now, now we, yeah, that's what he bought. Which issue or which series? Uh, the the very first issue, the number one from seventy five uh, or ninety three. Yeah, or, this, yeah. He's he's only forty two, so oh, okay. you know he he didn't buy it new. It, he bought it at a a shop that was also selling back issues. That's okay. And, That's uh, beautiful. Yeah. 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 So I mean, we like to tell that story because I like to say that there's some sort of poetic. Uh, irony about the whole thing, you know what I mean? Here I am now in business with Fatty, and uh, and and I like to think that buying that that issue made some sort of indelible impression upon him, and uh, you know what I mean? It's like uh, it set a course for him, kind of thing. You know what I mean? That that uh, that didn't awaken in, in him until he turned like in his late thirties or that's something. Great. So you know, I watched uh, the web series with my son. My son's ten. He thought it was great. And um, there's one line specifically. I think it was set episode one of the web series. And Redcoat says, uh, Intel says, uh, whoever, Mr. Gold's in Halifax. I forget. In Intel says, we got to go to Halifax. Captain Canuck says, good. I could use it on air. Yeah, well, <laughs> a best. lot of people seem to do that. And, and I keep asking a question. Is that the only place to get decent Donaire? I don't know. I, I just like it. <laughs> yeah. we got tons of Donaire yeah. and kebab places in Vancouver. But in, I never think of it in terms of Halifax, so that was awesome. Also, too, yeah. the music that's licensed to that, and when we talked the other day, you mentioned this, but, I mean, uh, Platinum Blonde, uh, I got it written down, Rush, uh, Word Burglar, I love that that song, it does yeah, 9 o'clock, yeah. Great yeah. Lake Swimmers, I mean, you got some, The Watchmen, I mean, you got some big yeah, the uh, names in the Canadian music industry, and... I can only imagine yeah. they said, yeah, use our work and we'll make it affordable for you because they love Captain Canuck. Yeah. Well, fortunately, they were all fans. Sure. And, and, and Fatty uh, had lots of connections because he's been in that kind of business, yeah. uh, you know, all of his life and uh, all of his working years. So he had the connections and, and he found everybody he contacted was very agreeable, and sure. and he got deals like nobody well, else. They would want to say, and get, you know, getting licensing from EMI or those big music labels—that's not cheap. Um, but no. How could you say no, no to Captain Canuck? It wouldn't be right. Yeah, 
Yeah, and 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 that's the re- that's what he got, and and he was so happy to get that kind yeah. of reaction. You know what I mean? He would he would tell me every time I I talked to him, they said, "Yeah, you can have it for a hundred bucks." You Isn't know what that mean? beautiful? Yeah. So he's uh, you know he was pretty happy about about the response he got, and and it did work very well. And the talent, the, the voice talent he got too. My goodness, you know, um, it's very Chris, good. Like everything, the the animation, the audio, the voice talent, the writing. I mean, it's very professional and 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 very good. I, we really enjoyed it. Yes, uh, Paul Gardner. He is now a producer at Bell right now, but uh, and um, uh, Dean Henry, both very very talented guys. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, it was and and they came out. Uh, I remember them coming out to my house when I was living in Cambridge. We've been in in living in Welland for a year, uh, exactly a year now, but. Uh, uh, they came out to my place, this is a couple of years ago now, and introduced themselves and told me what they wanted to do, and and I, I, I saw no problems with it. It was just a matter of finalizing the agreement with Fadi Hakim, you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And so, but I think uh, the vision they had and the vision that we all had uh, panned out is, you know, it... it it turned out as well as we had hoped it would. Yeah, it did. No, it's really great. Now, a couple uh, closing questions. you got to eat supper at some point, and I could keep you here all day if you'd let me, but I don't want to do that to you. Um, oh, tell me about the film. You, 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 and I, Mind's Eye Entertainment. You talked about that a little bit uh, when we spoke the other day. Um, it was in production, or at least licensed, uh, for a, a feature film and that got held up a little bit, you know, with uh, the labor dispute. Uh, tell me about this, though. Where is it at in terms of uh, a possible feature film? Yeah, I mean, over the years, I've had a number of people contact me about doing animation or or something, and nobody... Uh, the first option agreement I ever entered into was back in 97. <clears throat> that one didn't pan out. And then I... There was, um, I had a short option agreement with a company called Soldier Street, and then it it was very short, Mm -hmm. but, uh, and then um, a company called Sinking Ship, which does a bunch of children's programming, and they're a great company based in Toronto. Uh, I I was locked in with them for four and a half years, and then uh, Mind's Eye, uh, I made an agreement with Mind's Eye, uh, it's about, it's at least three years ago now, and uh, so it, the progress has been a little bit slow. The, the we are Arnie Olson, who is Vancouver based, uh, wrote the first draft of the screenplay. He and I worked together on the treatment, and then he wrote the 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 screenplay, the first draft, and he has almost finished the second draft. So from uh, with the second draft. Uh, Mind's Eye will then go looking to sign up a director and hopefully some uh, lead roles and then start hopefully putting the financing together. So that's where it's at right now. So, uh, But there's other talk about possibly doing a animated feature um, and, you know, there's some interest in doing that. And, of course, we're trying to make a deal with one of the broadcasters for animation, and we're working on that. And, you know, we're hoping that maybe even before the end of the year that there might be a breakthrough as far as 
as one of the, the networks is concerned. But it's all still, you know, um, you know, up in the air. As you know, not, nothing is salt is nothing is firmed up as far. We, you know, you will know if it's going to be a movie, or, or at least we'll have a pretty good idea is when it goes into production. And we're still probably at least at the very very least we're a, a year, probably two years away from from going into production on the film. Well, you know, I. I want that to work out, and uh, I'm going to hope and pray that everything goes smooth. I want that to happen. You know, and I'm not the only one. I'm sure there are 33 million other Canadians that want that to happen. Yeah. So we're we're all working towards that. and uh, But, uh, you know, as as far as, uh, you know, with Fatty and and Paul and and the others and and Walter, um, Duralia and George Saudi, these are other people that are involved uh, you know uh, in, in a big way their licensees or their uh, you know their their creative directors and uh, or creative input and so I, I I really feel that I've got a pretty good team working on this right now and I think our chances are are are, are very good in getting something really important happening and remember uh, next year is the 40th anniversary 2015 is our 40th anniversary right. and we and we have a lot of publishing uh in the works you've got those idw a, bound books um you know the, the two collected yep. volumes you've got more coming out well idw did three books and they were all really good sellers they all sold out they uh, the trade paperback is went to is in its second printing uh, we uh, we don't think we're going to be publishing with IDW. Uh, we, you know, we're looking at another possibility, and uh, but we're going to do a, a six-part miniseries. We're going to do another summer special like we did this year, uh, and we're going to do a graphic novel in 2015. We've got some promotional tours uh, in the works. And other events in the works too. So we want to make uh, 2015 uh, a memorable year for Captain yeah, Canuck. I want that too. For f- uh, film production, is Minds Eye Entertainment the current uh, best bet for the the future feature film? They ha- they have the rights. Good. They still uh, they they still have the rights, and yeah, they are the best bet for a feature film right now. They got a lot of films under their belt. I mean, right now on TV, Thirteen Eries on that's one of theirs. Um, I forget the name, but that film that they're just trying to sort out right now that's got Donald and Kiefer Sutherland and uh, who yeah. Demi Moore. Um, yeah. So they got a lot of big talent working with them. I I think that bodes well. I hope it does. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, we're, we're all hoping that they can pull it off. What do your kids think about Captain? You you, you have eight children, yes. Yeah. What do your kids think about Captain um, Connect? Oh, I, I think they're you know they're all they they're all quite happy with what I've done with it, and I've had many of my children involved in one aspect or another, either coloring or inking or lettering or doing some graphic design. I have one son, my son Jordan, is a graphic designer, uh, and uh, he helps me quite a, quite often with with stuff he can do. Uh, he, he works a long hours, so he doesn't have a lot of time to, to do stuff for me, but uh, I've got a son who is, who is an artist who um, 
went to he got his bachelor's degree in fine art. He's in BC now in Vancouver. Oh. And uh, I've had him do work for me. And what's his um, name? Uh, Corey. Corey. Corey Cumley. Yeah. Yeah, he just moved to Vancouver very recently. Um, and um, so uh, he just started a, a new job, not not as an artist. He's um, He worked... Uh, uh, at the uh, at the, the art center in Toronto for for yeah. years, but uh, uh, anyways, he um, and I've I've got three children in British Columbia. I've got a son in in uh, Nelson. Our son Joel, yeah. he's in Nelson, BC. He loves that area. That's yeah, beautiful. There. Got a yeah. I've got a daughter uh, on the, on Vancouver Island area, and uh, my only daughter. Yeah. And uh, Cortez Island and. Um, and I've got now my son in Vancouver, and then we've got four of our children in, in uh, Cambridge, mm-hmm. uh, Ontario. So, um, and one son who's working in Thailand. Oh, wow. a, what's he doing there? A teacher. Yeah. Well, <clears throat> he served as a missionary there for two years, and then when he graduated from Teachers College, he took a job at a private school uh, there. Good for him. So, yeah. So he's he loves Thailand. He he speaks the language. Um, he, he likes food, so he's he's going to spend a couple of years there. As you know, it's very difficult for teachers to get a job right at teachers' college. Well, it is, it is, and even when you know one does have a job, it's it's not easy to being a teacher in BC. We just resolved the uh, the teachers' strike. Um, I don't know if they covered that in the east at all, but oh yeah, oh yeah, we we heard about it. Yeah, no, I, I got a lot of respect for teachers, and it's it, it's not always easy. Yeah. Good for good for them, you know. Yeah. Coming back to you, actually going back to them, being a kid, you know, one of eight growing up, though it has it had to have been great having a dad who draws comics. I would have thought yeah, much know, better than that. I, when I don't a kid. know. Yeah, you know, I don't know. I really don't know if it was, you know, if they saw it that way exactly. Um, I mean, you know, we I've been a struggling commercial artist all my working life. So you know, we certainly didn't have much money, and uh, never drove new cars. You know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, uh, and with eight kids, uh, you know, even if I would have had a lot of money, we it wouldn't have had you know, or, or at least a, a larger income. Uh, they still wouldn't have had an mm-hmm. awful lot. Yeah. So. You know, money doesn't buy you happiness. So you know that. And speaking on behalf of ten-year-olds, I would have thought that was amazing. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I hope they, they, they seem to. Uh, I think there were times when they thought it was neat. You go to school, and what does your dad do? He's an accountant. My dad draws comics. Only one of those is going to tra- is going to pull well with the, with the kids in elementary. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> yeah. Now, I looking at yeah, you, yeah. I mean, you've been recognized by the Canadian Comic Book Hall of Fame. You received the Joe Schuster Award uh, in 2010, right? How's yeah, that, that was all feel? three of uh, good. I mean, the fact that it, I thought it was especially fitting that both uh, myself, George, and Claude were all inducted. So, and and I thought that was, you know, is the way it should have been. Yeah. But yeah, it was it was great. Well, that's wonderful. Well, you know, I really appreciate the time you've you've taken uh, out to talk with me today. So thank you, and no it's really been a pleasure talking to you. Is there anything I forgot okay. that I should have asked about? Uh, well, we've covered an awful lot of stuff and stuff that I really haven't covered before. Um, 
not not there's nothing that I can think of other than you know we've covered the fact that uh, what what I think is kind of important is that you know we've got a lot of things going on for 2015. Yeah. I want to mention that, but but uh, no, I think we've covered right. pretty well everything. Do you feel good about it? Any... Oh yeah. Okay. Yes. Well, thank you. It's been a real pleasure. All right. All right. Okay. Talk to you later, Greg. All right. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.